0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. Welcome back for another wonderful week of the Power of the Parsha. I would like to make a special announcement today. Lee and Lillian Showstack are sponsoring the Lunch and Learn in the memory of Lee's brother, Tzvi Dekel. So, Hashem should send an Elias Neshama, an elevation for the soul of Tzvi Dekel, in the honor of the learning that we will do today in his honor. I want to thank all of you for coming out here. For most of you who are here in person, for those of you who are here on Zoom, and for those of you who are watching this later or listening to it later until or any time, or even now, it's available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts or Stitcher Radio or wherever you get your podcast, the podcast is called Jewish Living with Burnham. Again, Jewish Living with Burnham, you can find that on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Thanks to my brother for setting that up. So I want to thank you all. I want to thank the amazing staff at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for setting up this beautiful lunch learn. And I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime for building this incredible repository of incredible Jewish Torah knowledge. And now we're going to talk about slavery. Ladies and gentlemen, who supports slavery in this room? Please raise your hand. Nobody? (laughs) Bueller? Okay. Now, first of all, the truth is, I'm going to get, it's going to get a little uncomfortable. The temperature is about to rise up over here a little bit because I'm going to tell you that you all support slavery, not with your mind, but with your dollars, because when you buy all these electronics, especially if you buy things like electric cars and all that, they use an enormous amount of cobalt. The cobalt is being pulled out of the earth by literal slaves in the People's Republic or the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is not democratic at all. And it's not even a republic. It supposedly is Congo. But all I know is it's being run by warlords who are forcing men, women and children to hack cobalt out of the ground by forced labor. If you don't believe me, look it up on the internet. It never lies. Okay, so the reality is we all support slavery, but not in that kind of way. At least, in the, in when we speak about it, we don't support slavery. We're very against slavery, which then makes this week's Torah portion a little bit uncomfortable. This week's Torah portion we just got out of. We just got the Torah. We just got the Torah at Sinai. That's Parshas Yisro, and now we're in Parshas Mishpativ. And we're about to have all these laws. The word mishpatim means laws. Interestingly, there's going to be a later Torah portion called chukas. Chukas means statutes. What's the difference between mishpatim and chukas? Chukim are laws that don't make any sense. Mishpatim are supposed to be the laws that make sense, like honor your mother and father. That's reasonable, right? Give large donations to the rabbi who speaks on Thursday afternoon. Reasonable, reasonable, right? Okay. However, let's see where this. Let's see where this one starts off. Here we go. These are the rules. These are the laws. The ordinances that you shall place before them, says God to Moses. After giving us the Torah, we also enthusiastically accepted the Torah. And God says, "All right, now we're going to start giving the Torah. Here we go. And first up is the law: Ki sikne eved ivri. When you buy a Jewish slave, she shanim yavod. He shall work for you for six years, and then he goes free on the seventh. Six years of slavery. Sounds like the name of a bad movie, or maybe a very critically acclaimed movie. Six years of slavery. Then I'm going to skip a little bit because we're about to get it's about to get home much more uncomfortable." Verse number 7, chapter 21 of Exodus, verse 7. <laughs> and when a man will sell his daughter as a slave or a servant, let's use a nicer word, a servant. <laughs> she doesn't go out the same way other slaves go out. Wait, wait, wait a second. What are we talking about over here? A father? Selling his daughter into slavery? At this point, many people are like, you know what? Can I take back that and nishma we said last week? Remember the whole, we will do and we will hear that we said last week? (laughs) Uh, I want to reconsider, is there a three-day clawback clause? You know what I'm saying? Like when you buy a timeshare in the state of Florida, because timeshare sales are so sketchy, they are required to give you ten days where you can reverse the sale. By the way, you know how they give you all those crazy offers, we'll pay for your dinner, we'll give you free tickets, you just got to come and listen to a two-hour presentation. I've done those a bunch of times. Not telling you what to do, but what you could do is just enthusiastically sign the dotted line, say this is brilliant, this is amazing, sign the dotted line, get out of there in 20 minutes, and then just call back and cancel. Whatever, I'm just saying, (laughs) time to fight back against the timeshare industry. We are not going down without a fight anymore. Okay, I did a lot of those timeshare presentations. It got us a lot of free stuff. Anyway, we actually one time did buy a timeshare because the guy was straight up lying to us. He literally had had us call somebody on the phone who was really his friend, who was pretending to say you could sell it for this... And then, I was like, this ain't right, because I'm seeing billboards everywhere trying to sell your timeshare. I'm like, why is everyone trying to sell their timeshare if they're so amazing? So I did a little bit more research, and I got in under that 10-day clause. And then the salesman who sold us this thing, fraudulently telling me stuff that was entirely not true, even having me call a real estate agent that was really his friend, then called at me to yell at me and curse me out. Just for the record. In any case, ladies and gentlemen, so the Torah says that you can sell a Jew as a slave, your father can sell his daughter as a slave, and I'm like, you know what? Maybe, uh, maybe those people who say the times have changed, whatever, I'm not so in for the Torah anymore. Like, I'm out. Maybe I want to get into the camp of the people who say, if we could just change the Torah with times, then it would all be perfect. Because, I, that, it's, not, it's not comfortable for me okay how do we deal with this? for, for real, like, how do you deal with this? the Torah says a father could sell his daughter into slavery does it make you uncomfortable? It should. it should thank you so let's talk about Charlie Munger by raise of hands who here knows who Charlie Munger is? one you know Charlie Munger two, he's not raising his hand though he doesn't want to be picked on. I get it. Or he's just cold. No problem. Charlie Munger is the right-hand man of Mr. Warren Buffet. Buffett. He is the vice president of Berkshire Hathaway. Now, if you think Warren Buffett is old, you are correct. He is old. Charlie Munger is slightly older. Let's get a little bit of stats on Charlie Munger. Charles Thomas Munger, born January 1, 1924. Which makes him currently 99 years old. And one month and 14 days. 15 days. Okay, so he's 91, and sorry, 99 and one-eighth years old. He's a billionaire. Not a huge billionaire. I checked his net worth. He's only worth like 2.3 billion, which honestly, it doesn't really get my respect. And at today's day and age, if you only have like $2.3 billion, whatever. I don't know what you did wrong in life, but yeah, he's, he's a billionaire. He also is very, very critical of something very dear to my heart. You guys know what that is? Bitcoin. Bitcoin. That's right. Charlie Munger is very, very critical of Bitcoin. And he's constantly taking the world mic and spewing his anger at Bitcoin. And this is what Charlie Munger had to say just yesterday, ladies and gentlemen, on February, what's today, the 16th? So just yesterday, on February 15th, or maybe it was the 14th, maybe this was his Valentine's Day message to Bitcoin. It isn't even slightly stupid. It's massively stupid. And of course, it's very dangerous. And of course, the governments were totally wrong to permit it. And of course, I'm not proud of my country for allowing this... Garbage, well, I call it crypto, and he uses a word there that should not be said over by any 99-year-old man, ever. It's worthless, it's crazy, it's not good, it'll do nothing but harm, it's antisocial to allow it. Okay, that's your opinion, but then he attacks me personally. He attacked me personally. At his press conference, he said, and Lady Burnham is an idiot. He did say that, but that's not how he worded it. Here's how he worded it. I think the people that oppose my position are idiots. Says the 99-year-old man while trying to ask his grandson how he sends an email. <laughs> <laughs> yes! This not, Charlie Munger says, I think that people who oppose my position, anybody who believes that there's value in Bitcoin, are idiots. Now, before we get into Bitcoin, which we will get into, let's first talk about some other predictions that were made over the course of time by really smart people. Let me first make a bracha, because there's nothing smarter than making a bracha on this delicious Coke Zero. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Alexander Graham Bell. Pretty bright guy. Invented the telephone. When a few years later, the Wright brothers developed this technology we call the aeroplane. He published a statement expressing the fear that these aeroplanes were going. Reportedly, they were going 34 miles an hour. And Alexander Graham Bell said, This is so dangerous that the airplane would always be impractical. Now, Henry Ford Shimoviz had a lawyer named Horace Rackham. You guys may have heard of the Rackham Golf Course. Named after Horace Rackham. Horace Rackham was Henry Ford's lawyer. When he came to the president of Michigan Savings Bank and said, Horace Rackham said, I want to invest in this new technology of the automobile that my friend Henry Ford is working on. The president of Michigan Savings Bank, a very powerful, wealthy bank at the time, kind of like what Charlie Munger is today, he said to him, the automobile is a fad, a novelty. Horses are here to stay. Can you hear me, Munger? We're not done yet. The Times Magazine in 1966 said, sorry, 1996, said, A remote shopping, while entirely feasible, will certainly flop. It has no chance of success. Marty Cooper, the inventor of the mobile phone, in 1981 said, Mobile phones will absolutely never replace the wired telephone. Steve Chen, the founder of YouTube, had this to say about his own company. I don't know. There just aren't that many videos that I want to watch. Albert Einstein, pretty bright guy. In 1932, said there is not the slightest indication that nuclear energy will ever be attainable. It would mean the atom would have to be shattered at will. Daryl Zanuck, president of 20th Century Fox in 1946. Television will never hold on to an audience. People will very quickly get bored of staring at a plywood box every night. (laughs) Dr. Dionysius Larder, professor of University College of London. Rail travel at great speed is not possible because passengers would be unable to breathe and die of asphyxia. (laughs) Bill Gates, the CEO of Microsoft, says no one will ever need more than 637 kilobytes of memory in a computer. 640 kilobytes ought to be enough for anybody. Kilobytes. You need a thousand of those to hit a megabyte. Today my computer has a, over a terabyte of memory, which is a thousand gigabytes, which each gigabyte is a thousand megabytes, which each megabyte is a thousand kilobytes, just for the record. And once in a while I got a message, your memory is full. <laughs> When IBM was pitched the idea of the copy machine by the people who would go on to found the company Xerox, they said, why would we make that? The global potential market for this copying machine is 5,000 at most. Okay. Ken Olson, the founder of Digital Equipment Corporation, said there's no reason an individual would ever want a computer in his own home. And I could go on and on and on and on all day. But I can tell you, here's a few more. Paul Krugman, vaunted, respected economist from the New York Times, in 1998 said, in 1998, the Internet will fade away because most people have nothing to say to each other. By 2005, it will be clear that the Internet's impact on the global economy has been no greater than the fax machine alrighty ladies and gentlemen let's get back to Charlie Munger how's he doing over there and in the left corner you've got 99 year old Charlie Munger screaming at the internet because of this thing called the Bitcoin saying that it has no value but maybe he's right maybe Bitcoin has no value the problem is Charlie Munger suffers from something called experience bias. There are many different biases that we suffer from. Okay? One of them is called experience bias. If I experience something my whole life one way, I assume that's the way it is for other people. For example, if I live in a society where people are generally are good and want the betterment of mankind, I think that other people in the world probably want that too. So if only I give them economic tools to help themselves develop their economies, they'll become amazing places filled with kindness, love, and democracy. Like our whole opening up to China. That didn't work out too well. It just became a country that stole hundreds of billions of dollars of our secrets every year. is murdering millions of Uyghur Muslims. But in our experience, we're like, we're nice people. They're probably nice people too. It's called the experience bias. Another example... If you live in an area where it's easily... Health care, good. Solid health care is easily attainable. You're like, yeah, thank God today with all the marvels of modern medicine, we can have such amazing health care. If you're in maybe 12% of the world. But you don't see the world through the eyes of other people. Now let's talk about the rest of the world that Charlie Munger doesn't see much because he hangs out in Omaha, Nebraska most of his time. For starters, let's talk about the people in the world who live in countries where inflation is an absolute out-of-control problem. Now, the worst inflation in the history of humanity was in Hungary. Between the years 1945, the end of 1945, and July of 1946. It was all of seven, eight months. Okay? In seven, eight months, they experienced, it sounds funny to say this, one quadrillion percent inflation. One quadrillion. So it means, at first, their largest banknote was a thousand pingo. The name of their currency was the pingo. So at first, their largest note was a thousand pingo. Then it became a million. Then a billion then a trillion, then a quadrillion, then a quintillion, all within the matter of seven, eight months. Now that's out of control. In Venezuela, in recent years, there were times where inflation has soared over a million percent, and they don't even put a price on anything because You'd be, your price, it's different, the price is different from the morning to the afternoon. So then you have a sign, come and ask the storekeeper. When you come in the morning to get a coffee, it's $17 billion you know, uh, pesos. Come back for lunch. It's, it's $21 billion by now. You should have had two cups in the morning. Okay? In the last year... Venezuela experienced 1,198% inflation. Sudan experienced 340% inflation. Lebanon, 201% inflation until last week when they devalued their currency intentionally by 90%. Syria, 139%. Suriname, Suriname 63%. Zimbabwe, 60%. Argentina, 51%. Nigeria just made a rule suddenly saying that they're no longer honoring their old banknotes. They created these new ones. And if you have old ones still, they didn't allow you to withdraw as much as you... They didn't allow you to change in as much as you wanted. People were lined up outside the banks for days trying to change in their old currency, but there was only a limit on how much you could change. Millions of people across Nigeria are walking around now with sacks full of nothing. Nothing. Lebanon's currency has lost 95% of its value since 2019. For all those people in the world, it might be valuable for them to have a currency that can't be inflated. Now you'll say, wait a second, but the value of Bitcoin went down 70% from November 1 through, let's call it November of, about a year, from November of 2021 to November of 2022, which it did. However, first of all, it's, it's gone up by about 50% in the last few weeks. 40%. <laughs> However, there only will ever be able to be 21 million Bitcoin, ever. Which means that it can't be inflated. Which means that people who are smart are starting to realize even the government, like the American dollar, which is the most powerful currency in the world, at a certain point you realize, wait a second, but aren't they just printing trillions and trillions of dollars that we don't have? And the answer is yeah. And at some point, aren't people going to stop... Buying our debt? And the answer is, that happened already. So how are they still printing money? Oh, we buy our own debt. At this point, America is buying the majority of its debt. Which might be a shell game to you. And you say, hmm, maybe I want to at least hedge myself. And have some value in something that can't be inflated. Maybe you're from the 31.5% of the world's population who doesn't even have access to a bank. Charlie Munger is sitting in Omaha. They got Chase, they got Bank of America, they got all kinds of banking options. 31% of the world cannot access a bank. For most of those people, holding money, holding gold, holding real things of value is very dangerous. People can come into your house and steal it all. With Bitcoin, all you have to do is remember 24 words, or write them down and hide them somewhere, or write them down and split them amongst a bunch of relatives. Nobody could ever steal your stuff. The problem is, Charlie Munger only sees the world through his own eyes. And in his limited eyes, as a 99-year-old man who's his whole life been living in America, his whole life had access to a, a bank, his whole life had incredibly cheap goods, because of the dollar's dominance in the world, which he benefited from so much, while we were just printing money irresponsibly and recklessly, he can't even imagine that there's any reason in the world that people would want some other kind of currency. Because in his experience, he didn't need it. Which now brings us to fathers selling their daughters to slavery. Baruch Hashem! Everybody in this world has not ever had to sell their daughter into slavery. And never is selling a daughter into slavery a great option. No. Scratch that. Sometimes, selling your daughter into slavery is an amazing option. The best that you have available. By raise of hand, raise your hand if you know anybody who died of starvation. You know somebody in the Holocaust? Did you know them personally? No, you know people whose relatives died of starvation. Okay, good, right. So we have in our room here, we have people who know people who lost Relatives, friends, to starvation. Throughout world history, starvation was very common. Today we have these amazing machines massive, tremendous machines, combines that are controlled at this point by GPS and robots. And we produce incredible amounts of food. We produce so much food that we burn and waste every year. Enough food to feed half the planet. Burn or waste every year enough food to feed half the planet. We don't have a problem of food shortage in the, in the world today. The only places that are experiencing food shortages its not an issue if there's not enough food in the world. It's an issue of access, the countries they live in, the dictators, so on and so forth. There are people today in the world still dying of starvation. That's a travesty. Because there's enough food for everybody. Back in the day, it was a lot worse. Because back in the day, 90% of humanity was involved in food production. Today, in America, 2-3% of Americans are farmers. And those 2-3 heroic percent are able to produce enough food for all of us. Except for evidently eggs. now in the olden times 90% of humanity was involved in food production because it was so hard to get food out of the earth you didn't have machines the best machines we had in those days were oxen so the majority of humanity was involved in food production and when there was a a couple years of drought in a row which there are today there are droughts all over the place but we have either A the ability to bring in Food from other parts of the world we have the ability to dig miles deep for water in California right now California is a major food producing state and there's been a major drought there for over a decade how are they still producing food part of it is they're just drilling and they have the ability today to drill down a mile deep to get to water or more Israel has massive desalinization plants that technology wasn't available 2,000 years ago so let's transport ourselves back, ladies and gentlemen, to the house of Yaakov the farmer, who lived in the year two, uh, 400 BCE. Okay? He lived 2,400 years ago. He's a farmer, but guess what? There's been a drought. And there hasn't been almost any crops now in three years. He has a family of six children. Young children. The oldest is his boy, who's 14 years old, who goes out with him every day into the field and tries to do whatever they can to farm, but almost nothing's coming up. Then he's got a, an, an 11-year-old girl. He's got a bunch of little ones. And they are dying of starvation. This is real. Okay? Imagine yourself in that situation. They are dying of starvation. I know people who told me when they lived in Europe, this is not so long ago, 80 years ago, that they came home. There wasn't dinner every day. I always say this. We come home, we say, Mom, what's for dinner? People used to come home and say, Mom, are we having dinner tonight? And the answer was, I'm sorry, there's no dinner today. Okay, that was it. There was no dinner. And when people had dinner... Sometimes they were splitting literally a cooked potato, one cooked potato. They would split it up and cut it up into little pe- equal pieces. Everyone's fighting over who gets a bigger piece of the potato. This is reality. Now, let's go back again to Yaakov the farmer living 2,400 years ago. His children are dying of starvation, they're starting to get lethargic. Their stomachs are distending in hunger. And he's beside himself. He doesn't know what to do. (coughs) Then he has an idea. He has a daughter. And he can sell her to a wealthy person who lives one town over, who's looking for somebody to take care of the children, light housework, cooking, cleaning, babysitting. Now the laws of how you have to take care of a, a slave woman are incredible. You have to feed her the same way you feed yourself. So there's no such thing as like, you know, in, in, in the English manners, you have the servant's quarters, they're downstairs, they're eating their food, and they come up and they serve the masters, the masters food. Not in Jewish law. You've got to serve them the same food you serve yourself. If there's only one blanket in the house that goes to the slave... If there's only one pillow, it goes to the slave. These were laws that were made to ensure that everyone got pillows. Everyone got blankets. Now, here's how it works. If I sell my daughter, number one, let's say I'll get $1,000 for her, whatever the core currency was, the shekel. I'll get 1000 shekel for her. I can use that money to buy food for my leftover children, my five other children and my wife. I now also have one less mouth to feed. She was an 11-year-old girl. She's eating. She should be. I couldn't, now I have to split the food to one less person. And I have money to buy more food, to buy more, another plot of land to try to cultivate whatever it might be to hopefully get myself out of... Out of eventually this, this famine is going to stop, and if I have another plot of land, maybe I'll be able to get, some, get ourselves out of poverty. But furthermore, the Torah says if she's not good in the eyes of her master who could have designated her for himself or for his son right? meaning social mobility generally the way it works in the world is the rich marry the rich and the poor stay poor how do you have social mobility? the Torah's laws ideally depending on the age the girl and and, and the boy You have a boy, this this guy, this rich guy who just bought the girl. He has a son. And the son sees this wonderful, sweet girl. She's kind, she has gratitude, she's not spoiled, she's sweet, she's hardworking, she's taking care of all the children, she's so loving. He sees the way he's babysitting her little sisters. His little sorry, he sees the way she's babysitting his little sisters, how helpful she is, how sweet, how kind. She's not expecting anything. She's not entitled. And he says, Mom, I want to marry that girl. That's the ideal way. The Torah says that's the ideal way. The, the, the person who buys her should marry her into his family. And then not only does his father have more food to feed the rest of his children and hopefully keep them all alive, and he has money to hopefully buy more food or more business so he can maybe make money to be able to support his family, but this girl now is hopefully going to end up marrying into a family that's a successful, prosperous family. And she will not have to worry about three, squares of, three square meals a day ever again. It's finally a way to reverse this centuries of poverty in the family. How do you guys feel about this now, huh? How do you feel about it now? Pretty interesting. Not so bad. Wow. The Torah is brilliant. Came up with a system that people who are deeply impoverished can help save their families' lives, give their family a new injection of money to be able to hopefully build a business and get their family back on their feet, and even help social mobility so that the rich marry the poor and they hopefully spread the wealth around a little bit more and create more of an equitable society. Holy cow! It's brilliant! See? It's all about experience bias. If you're Charlie Munger, and you never ever felt starvation, and you never felt what it's like to be a father coming home to dying children, because you simply cannot give them food, including the daughter, you're like, how could somebody ever sell their daughter for slavery? That's crazy, the Torah is so backwards, patriarchal cruel and insane. I don't believe in this Torah. It was written by a bunch of old men and I reject it on its very grounds. Hold up, Charlie Munger. Check your experience bias at the door, please. Recognize that you can't possibly fathom realities other than your own. But wow, can you create a different scenario suddenly and you're like, this Torah is brilliant. Brilliant saving of lives, social engineering, lowering the wealth gap. It's brilliant. Okay. That's idea number one for today. Okay, guys? The main message you should come away with is the Torah is brilliant. And if you don't understand something in the Torah and it seems off to you, instead of just criticizing it and calling anybody who supports it idiotic, Check your experience bias. Check in with people who are smarter than you, or who learned more or understand the situation better, and figure it out. Don't be quick to judge. You hear me, Charlie? (laughs) Next. The Torah here says something very interesting. The Torah is talking... In chapter twenty two, verse twenty two. Do you like that? Two two? Two two. The Torah says the following. The Torah talks a lot in this parsha about taking care of other people. Here's the mitzvah, for example, in this week's Torah portion that you're not allowed to lend money with usury to another Jew. Hmm, why? Sounds a little weird, right? Well, we treat the Jews better than the non-Jews? And I don't understand, like, you're not allowed to loan money with interest? Another one of those things. I'm slightly uncomfortable about it. Is that how the Jews got into banking? Because they were always allowed to take usury from the goyim, but not from the Jews? The answer is, my friends, wait a second. Why in the world would anybody ever loan money? Loaning money, if you don't know this, is one of the worst things you can do to people, I'm saying. Because there's a good chance you don't ever get that money back. My general rule when I lend a person money is that I'm expecting to never get it back. And thankfully, I've been right most of the time about that. (laughs) My son told me a joke this morning. This kid comes into his father and says, Dad, I got good news for you. He says, Really? What's the good news? I just saved you a ton of money. Really? How'd you do that? Remember you told me that if I got a good report card, you'd buy me a new game system? I just saved you a ton of money. <laughs> oh, I said, It's the same thing. Baruch Hashem, I've been right. Every time I loan money to people, I expect to not get it back. And I guess I've been right. That's the good news. Anyway, loaning money is stupid. You take money that you can use to buy and sell items, business, real estate, and you give it to somebody else. And again, if there's no interest attached in tax what I'm talking about, without getting interest, there's a chance you get it back, there's a chance you don't get it back. But right now you have money in your hands. I have $100 in my hand. If I lend it to somebody with no interest, even assume there's a 90% chance that I do get it back, that 10% makes it totally not worth it. And on top of that, while the money is in his hands, I can't make money on my money. You know I always want to make money on my money. <laughs> so loaning money is just foolish. Unless you could charge interest. In which case, then we come into a whole market. There's a financial markets. We've got to calculate the risk. If I'm loaning money to this person, they're very reliable. Maybe I'll loan it to him for 5%. This is much more risky. And no economies can grow without people loaning capital. Which is, by the way, why the Jews were often invited to come to countries. Because the Christians were not allowed to loan with interest to anybody. They saw usury as being dirty. Interest is the money of the devil. But we can't, our, our, our markets are constrained. There's no business. There's no development. So what do we do? Invite the devil's children to come. <laughs> and they can work with the interest money. The money of the devil with the devil's children. Bring the Jews in. I mean, literally. But that's the reality. Anywhere Jews went throughout the medieval era, ages, they were able to bolster economies and build up communities, because they they would lend money with interest, and again, that's how Jews became very big in banking. It wasn't because we wanted that, it's because we were prevented from doing pretty much everything else. And the few things that we were allowed to do were we were allowed to make whiskey, which is considered the drink of the devil, and we were allowed to loan money, which, by the way, made for a lot of uncomfortable situations. When people are buying alcohol from the Jew and getting drunk in the Jewish tavern, and while they're drunk, they realize that I owe moshkeh, a lot of money and if Mushka wasn't here life would be better for me and I'm drunk which unfortunately has caused enormous persecution of Jews because alcohol and good decisions don't go together well and if the money I owe is always to the Jewish guy so I hate on him and I'm drunk and boom, this happened all the time it was dangerous so interest is not only a good thing And it makes sense. I should want to borrow money on interest. Not to buy myself luxury goods and max out my credit cards. And by the way, today, I don't know if you know this, American credit cards debt is at the highest it's ever been. And, don't get me wrong, some of of it is just people who can't afford to buy eggs. And milk. And bread. Because inflation is so high. And they're Salaries are not going up. But a lot of it is still people buying luxuries. The luxury good market is thriving right now. Tons of people. They say 50% of Americans making $100,000 or more say they feel like they're living paycheck to paycheck. Let me repeat that again. 50% of Americans making $100,000 a year or more say that they're living paycheck to paycheck. And yet the luxury goods market is thriving. Credit card, credit card, credit card. But even if the bottom line is, let's say I'm building a business. Let's say I'm trying to build up a new business. The only way I'll grow that business is by taking on debt. Usually, you could try to grow very, very slowly every time you get a job and put away whatever. You could do that. But I want to buy new trucks, I want to buy new machines. I recently took a tour of a factory. Wow, these massive ovens that are able to bake. Powder coatings onto aluminum gates that are 60 feet long. You have to go to you have an oven that's like, like literally, the oven itself is like it's 20 feet tall and like 80 feet long. It's crazy. That, that costs a lot of money. Can't buy that oven unless I take out debt. The only way you grow a company is by taking on debt. So, interest, if you're paying it responsibly, is, is a good thing. It helps capital markets thrive, it helps development. So why does the Torah say you shouldn't do usury to a Jew? Why does the Torah say you shouldn't take interest from a Jew? Is interest bad or is interest good? The answer is, my friends, interest is very good. However, you know what you don't do? You don't charge your brother interest. If your brother needs money, you don't charge your brother interest. You give it to him, again, like I said, sometimes you lend money money to people and it doesn't come back. But no matter what, you don't charge your brother interest. He's family. Hashem wanted to incorporate that mindset in the Jewish people. So he said, you can loan money with interest. That's fair. That's righteous. That makes sense. That's how capital markets will thrive and development will happen. Just don't lend money with interest to a fellow Jew, because he's your brother. And I want you to understand that, so I'm going to make a law saying, you've got to treat your fellow Jew like your brother. The same way you wouldn't charge your brother interest, you can't charge him interest either. Now, the Pusik says over here, Kol almana vyasom any widow or orphan you shall not cause pain to because if he cries out to me, Shamoah eshmatza I will hear his cry, V'chara pi, and I'll get angry, and I'll bring destruction to you. The Torah is extraordinarily, extraordinarily sensitive to the feelings of those who are impoverished, of those who are widows, orphans, the less privileged. Now the Torah says... You shall if he if you will oppress him, when he comes crying to me. Now, why does it say ki im? The word ki means like only. If you will oppress him, only he will come crying. If he will come crying to me, I'm gonna come after you. What does the word only mean there? So the sages tell us something fascinating. If you look at the beginning of the book of the book of Shmuel Samuel one. There's this man named Elkanah. He's got two wives, Hana and Penina. Penina has plenty of children, Hana has none. And Penina stresses Hana out. When they go to Jerusalem, she says they're Oh, I'm packing extra bibs for the children, because you know how they always make a mess. Why is she doing that? She did it, Lashem Shamayim. She did it for the right reasons, because she wanted Hannah to be so broken that Hannah would just go and pour out her heart before God with every ounce of her strength, with every fiber of her being. And indeed, it worked. At one time, they're at Jerusalem, and they're at the meal, and Penina's busy giving kids food, and this kid, and this kid, and says a line, and another line, and it's so much Chana can't take it and Chana goes to the temple and she starts pouring her heart out to God like she never poured out before. And God rewards her with a child. But the sages tell us that for every child that was born to Chana, a child was lost to Penina. And eventually Penina lost all her children. I said, what do you mean? What, what did she do wrong? Yes, she was hurting her sister but only for the right purposes. The sages say, no matter what, you cause somebody pain. Even if you did it with the most noble of intentions, you are responsible. And that's how you look at the verse, em so, if you oppress somebody, Ki you only oppressed him so that he should cry out to me. You, Ki you oppressed him so that he should cry out to me. You had noble intentions. Hashem says, unfortunately, you caused somebody pain. You're going to have to pay for it. I want to tell you an amazing, unbelievable story. I was told over by Rav Shalom Shwadrun, who was a great Magid, a great storyteller, inspirational speaker. He said there was a city in Europe in which there was the wealthy guy. The wealthy guy's name was Rebzalman. And Rabbi Zalman was a sweet and kind, wealthy person. And he used to be, he was very supportive of all the people, he was very kind, he shared of his wealth in a proper way. Now Rabzalman used to always carry, in those days, people, this is before, really before cigarettes, people in those, in those days used to, used to use what they call shmek Tabak. You guys remember shmek Tabak? So I, <laughs> I remember it too. I've used it in my life maybe a dozen times or so. All to great fanfare. <laughs> and excitement and joy. So a schmecktah, because you take these little, uh, little like it's like, a, like tobacco dust, sort of, and you take a little, little pinch of it, and then you start like, whoa! <laughs> it kind of wakes you up, it shakes you awake, and you start sneezing, and you clear out your, your, your system, whatever. Now, Reb had a beautiful silver case and he always kept it fully stocked with shmek Tabak. and everyone in town knew that if you wanted, if you wanted a little, a little, uh, a little pinch, he would be only too happy to take out his case and to offer you a pinch. Okay. Now, in that city, there was also somebody. Every city had their town rich guy, and every city had their town, town pauper. The town pauper was a guy named Meisha, and everyone knew the guy. Just unfortunately, fortune never favored him. He must have not been bold. Fortune never favored him, and he always was struggling for money. And it got so bad that one year on Arab Yom Kippur he didn't even have food for the, to, to eat before the fast. There's a whole meal we eat, a festive meal before the fast called the Suda <laughs> Samab and he was trying to scrounge around, trying to find something. He's getting later and later. Finally, he comes home. His wife says, No, did you bring something home for the pseudonym of Sekis? He says, I'm so sorry, honey. I couldn't find anything. And she just loses. She says, get out of my house. What kind of man are you? You can't even provide for your children. It's Yom Kippur. We don't even have food to eat before Yom Kippur. Now we're going to be fasting for two days. Get out of the house! Poor guy. Poor guy. He's so dejected. And he goes to Shul. And he's lying on the back bench in Shul. In the meantime, Reb Zalman, the rich guy, spent the day, he gave a lot of charity out. Then he ate an incredible, beautiful meal with all the delicacies, the finest foods. And he was a pious and righteous man, so he decides, I'm going to go to Shul. I'll try to get there a little bit early. I want to say, there's a whole bunch of prayers called tfil that you're supposed to say before Yom Kippur. And sure enough, he comes to Shul and he gets wrapped in his talos because we wear a talos at night on, on Yom Kippur night. And he starts getting into it and he's reading from his machsar. He's feeling pretty good about himself. He's given a lot of charity that year. He's done a lot of good. And he's sitting there and he's saying, tfil zaka. Rev Moshe, who's lying in the back of the bench, he hears this noise. He hears someone coming in. He hears somebody davening. And he sees it's, it's Reb Zalman, the rich guy. He says, you know what? At least before the fast, let me get... A little, a little pinch of shmek tabak. He'll give me a little. I have no food, no coffee, no. Maybe a little, a little pinch of shmek tabak. So he shuffles on over to Rabzalman. And Rabzalman's sitting there in davening. And he says, unchuldig, unchuldig, I'm sorry, Rabzalman. Maybe I could have a little pinch of shmek tabak. Rabzalman looks at him and says, Maisha, are you serious? I'm an old davening right now. Drilo before before Yom Kippur. You're gonna bother me for some tabak <laughs> Moshe just can't believe it. Like, just like it, just it can't, so embarrassed, he slinks off and he goes to the corner and he just starts crying and he says, "God, am I not even worth a pinch of tabak That year in Shemayim, there was a big, big rush, a big sound, a big tumult. Of course, he didn't mean to. Rabbi Zalman, the rich guy, did not mean to do this, but to add the, the, the pain of, of, of what Moshe was going through and all the suffering he already experienced. And then on top of that, to have this rich guy look at him and say, come on, man, what's wrong with you? You're going to bother me now for a little bit of shmek Tabak? And Shemayim, they decided the following. They decided there's going to be this year a flip. Rabbi Zalman's going to lose everything. And Rav Mosh is going to become a wealthy gvir, a wealthy man. And sure enough, the day after Yom Kippur, Mosh is walking in the street. He doesn't know how he's going to make sukkahs. How's he going to put up a sukkah? How he's going to. <laughs> food for Yom Tev. And he bumps into a relative. And the guy says, Moshe, Moshe, why are you looking so. why the long face? And he just says, what do you mean, why the long face? Yom Tev is almost sukkahs. I've got. I had no food for Yom Kippur, I've got no food, why should I not have a long face? Everything's terrible. So the man says, oh, Mishala, you know what, let me help you out a little bit. He puts his hand in his pocket, takes out 300 rubles, he says, mashallah go, here's a nice amount of money, don't just spend it on Yom Tif food, go do some buying, some selling, see if you could buy something wholesale, sell it, everyone's trying to buy food right now for Yom Tif. see if you can get something wholesale from the depot, you'll bring it in, you'll sell it. And sure enough, Moshe starts buying and selling. He sees incredible success. That year, for Sukkot, he already has tons of food. But then it continues out. After Yomtev, he starts going back into business. And before you know it, he starts making money, hand over fist, and life starts getting amazing for him. Meanwhile, on the other side of town, Zalman starts losing all of his money. Every deal he's in goes belly up. Every project he started working on gets, you know, delayed and over-leveraged. And he starts losing money rapidly. Finally, he, he, he looks around the town. He's like, wait a second, what's going on over here? Moshe, the poorest guy in town, he's making tons of money. I'm the richest guy in town, I'm losing tons of money. He doesn't know what to do. So he goes to the great Hasidic master of Levi, Yitzchak Mi-Berdichev. He travels to the city of Berdichev and he goes to meet with the great Reb Levi, Yitzchak Berdichev. And he pours out his heart before the rabbi, and the rabbi said, let me ask you a question. Is it possible that you offended Moshe, sure this, this guy who used to be a pauper, who's now making... Is it possible you offended him somehow? He said, me, offended him? God forbid, why would I ever do that? He said, I says, think hard. Is it possible you offended him? Because something's... You're right in noticing something strange over here. Think hard. He's thinking, he's thinking, he's finally like, oh. He says, Yeah. He says, Kippur, I was davening. And he came over to me, and I said to him, I said, Mishla, are you serious? You're going to bother me for some Shmech right now? Don't you see? It's Erev Kippur, I'm davening? And Rav Levi Yitzchak Mibar says to him, he says, I'm so sorry. He says, you don't realize the pain that you caused another yid and how serious it is in heaven when you cause pain to one of your brethren. You have no idea how serious it is. It truly has been a Gezerah, a decree from heaven. And it's going to continue until he's going to have all your wealth. And the man says, Is there anything I can do to stop this? Anything that I can do to stop this? He says, If you come to Moshe and ask him for a Shmech tabak and he doesn't give it to you, then, you'll get, then it will, you can dive into Hashem and say, Look, he didn't do it for me either. Reverse the situation. Okay. This so man goes back to town, and sure enough, slowly over the next few months, the last of his fortune is gone. He's a poor man now. Moshe is a super rich guy. And he knows if he goes over to Moshe on the street, says, can I get some out, Talbuk? He's going to for sure give it to him. So he waits. Count of Monte Cristo style. He waits for the perfect moment. And when's the perfect moment? Moshe, the rich guy, is about to marry off his oldest daughter to the rabbi's son. And the whole town is invited. And they put up a beautiful spread. And they've got a whole band, Klezmer, playing the music. And everyone's so excited and they're all standing now under the chuppah, the, the rabbi of the town with his wife, walked down the chassin. And then this rich guy now, Moshe who used to be the pauper, walked down with his wife, the kala. And they're all standing under the chuppah. And the rabbi turns to Moshe the rich guy. He says, do you have the kasuba? Do you have the, the marriage document? He says, sure, let me see. And right then, as he's about to put his hand into his pocket, the whole town is watching, Zalman comes over and says, Maisha, Moshe do you have a... Pinch of Shmech Tabak? <laughs> and Moshe says, Zalman, of course. He quickly puts the Ksuba back into his pocket, opens up his other pocket, takes out the Shmech tabak, and Zalman faints on the spot. <laughs> the whole town's like, what's going on? They revive him. And, and, and Moshe says, what's going on? He says, I'll tell you after the brachas. I'll Brachas. You just, you enjoy the party now, I'll tell you after the Shavar Brachas. After the shower he comes in, he tells him the whole story. Do you remember that time that I embarrassed you? He says, of course I remember. Rabbi Levi Yitzchik said, because of that, I lost all my money, and you got it all. Can we go to Rabbi Levi Yitzchik and figure it all out? He says, sure. They traveled to Rabbi Levi Yitzchik and they decided that Moshe was going to give half of his money back to Zalman. That's, that's the end of the story. <laughs> A wild story, but what does it teach us, though? Sensitivity. We get angry at people sometimes and we just throw out lines and they're embarrassing and hurtful to people. <laughs> we don't make much of it, but in heaven they do. Ki'im tz'ok yitzhak lie, Hashem says, if someone comes crying to me that he's been hurt and he's been pained, even if you did it with the nicest and the most noble of intentions, I hear the pain. I hear the cry. So let's make sure we redouble our efforts to be so sensitive to everybody around us, so caring, so sensitive. The words we use the things we talk about, the way we say it. And when Hashem sees how kind and sensitive we are, He'll shower us with blessing. And the greatest blessing will come, which is the coming of the Mashiach. Amen! Thank you for coming! Thank you for listening! And thank you for being awesome! You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com